You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. Enjoying the podcast? Consider supporting it on Patreon. You'll get behind-the-scenes looks, sneak peeks, extra bonus content, and best of all, a way to interact with me, your host. You'll also get discounts on merch like tank tops and magnets and all the other services I provide, like booking me to speak, coach or consult, or even advertise here on the podcast. Check it out in the show notes or in patreon.com slash choose your struggle. Plans start at as little as $3.40 a month, and all the money goes right into the podcast. All right, let's get back to the show. Spread love. Choose your struggle. Welcome to a very special Monday motivation. This is going to be, uh, <laughs> well, basically, when I was giving my my TEDx talk uh, last week, I, <laughs> of course, as always happened. So the whole night goes off without a hitch. All the technology is working. All the slides, everything, and I get out on stage. And I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, probably uh, four sentences into my speech. And I look at someone I know in the audience and he's given me the stop sign, not like holding up his hand, but like cut off, cut off. And I'm like, what? What's going on? And so I look up at the, uh, the sound booth, right? And the guy is, is pointing to his ears going, we can't hear you. So, uh, of course, the whole night goes off without without a hitch. And then my microphone does not work. I'm the last speaker. So um, they, the, the host rushes on and gives me a handheld mic, which, of course, is not going to be as good because I gesture when I talk. And, and so, you know, there's going to be times where I'm sure the audio is not going to be good on the recording. Uh, and I had planned to release it later as a... Um, as a special episode on a Monday. So instead, I'm just going to do it. Um, so, you know, for, for more context of other special episodes, real quick before I start this that are coming up, uh, there is uh, Stephen Alonich's uh, Day in the Life is still going to be replayed. Also, someone made me aware of this last week. Uh, they said, when are we going to get to hear Rock Bottom? I completely miffed on that. I thought I'd already put it out. They were right. I went back and realized I had never put out Rock Bottom 2. So Rock Bottom 2 will drop probably, uh, I would say, maybe next week. That's probably the, the best way to do it would be next week as the Monday episode. So um, be prepared for, for both of those. But today, I want to give you my uh, TEDx talk. So... Uh, here it is. This is just going to be me doing this off the cuff. Uh, enjoy. And as always, you know, let me know what you think. Um, you know, I guess the one preference I would say is if you hear an outlandish claim or something that you're like, I've never heard that before. Chances are there was a slide that went with it that had the quote on it. Um, and I'll try to stop and reference that as much as I can. In this. So anyway, without further ado. Close your eyes. Yep. I'm one of those speakers you're going to laugh about in the car ride home, but, you know, just humor me here for a second. And with your eyes closed, think about everything you've been taught, everything you've heard from our elected officials, everything you've seen on the news, on TV, or in the movies. And with all of that in mind, what comes to you when you hear the word addict or addiction? What about drug use or drug users? What about just drugs? 
Okay, you can open your eyes now, but don't forget those images you had in your head. On election night of 2015, I stood on stage before a crowd, well, a little bit bigger than the one I stood up before last week. And I told that crowd, or admitted to that crowd, a realization I'd had not long before, one that I wasn't proud of. That night, I told that crowd that when I picture the word addict, what I see in my mind is the same image that we are inundated with when we talk about drug use, drug users, and addiction. Namely, that person experiencing homelessness, begging on the side of the road with track marks up his arm. We are taught to pity this person or disgustingly to hate this person by some of those that we elect to lead us. We're shown nothing but contempt for this person in our news, in movies, and on TV. Sadly, we're never taught to love this person. Now, you may be thinking, so what, right? I mean, we all agree that, that this lack of empathy is a problem, even though there's been no movement on it in our society as a whole. And of course, we should always have love for our brothers and sisters who are struggling. But why is this my mission? Why is this my passion? Why is this the thing I've dedicated my life to? Well, it's because my name is Jay Schiffman, and I'm in recovery. My struggle with mental health, substance misuse, and eventually addiction began right here in this school, which is, by the way, where I gave this TED Talk last week, when I walked these halls as a student. In the late 90s, I, along with other 2 million other young people, I was a preteen at the time, was diagnosed with ADHD. This was at a time when that particular diagnosis had grown at a rate of over 200, I'm sorry, of almost 500% in just a decade. And while that particular diagnosis may have fit, my therapist was a bit, well, we'll call him trigger happy. Seeing the side effects from putting me on multiple brand new medications in just a few short years, at a time when I was going through puberty, we all remember how much fun those changes are, and knowing that I'm a guy who struggles with depression, anxiety, OCD, and ADHD, all of which, mind you, he had diagnosed me with. For reasons known only to him, he saw this perfect storm that he had helped create and gave it a new name, bipolar disorder, one that he was, of course, happy to recommend new drugs for. Now, fast forward about half a decade, I'm in my early 20s, and I'm on over five different medications every day all of which I am misusing or addicted to. In the summer of 2009, when most of my classmates from high school were going on to internships or their first real job or maybe grad school, I was sitting alone, attempting suicide for the second time in two days. Over the next six weeks, I would go through an overdose, be physically assaulted by a police officer, spend the night handcuffed to a bed at the University of, Hosp University of Cincinnati Hospital, wake up in the lockdown unit at the Linder Center of Hope, where I'd spend three weeks, followed by three months in a long-term care facility up in the Berkshires, a place we would have called a mental institution 50 years ago. But finally, in that long-term care facility, I recognized that the diagnosis I'd got in my teenage years was incorrect, and I did the only thing I could. I checked myself out on New Year's Eve of 2009, 
and went through what's called step-down detox over the next three-plus months. I did that last part at the home of my best friend, my grandmother. And thanks to my grandmother, who was my nurse, my confidant, and my cheerleader during this time, in the spring of 2010, I had no drugs in my system for over, I mean, for the first time in over a decade and a half. And that's when I set about rebuilding my health and rebuilding my life. So when I stood on stage that night in front of that crowd, and I admitted to them that what I picture when I think of the word addict is the same stigma-inducing straw man as everybody else, the full force of a guided intent to mislead us was on display. There I was, a guy five years in recovery, and yet the campaign that began in the early 1900s to separate fact from the conversation around drug use and drug users was so strong that even I, a person who had lived a direct, directly contradictory experience, could not separate my own experience from the fiction. Like so many others that I know in recovery, I truly believed myself to be the exception that proved the rule. Sure, I thought, addiction can happen to anyone, and by the way, it can. But I'd never used meth or heroin or any of those scary drugs that we learned about in uh, by representatives of the, the D.A.R.E. campaign or Nancy Reagan's Just Say No initiative, and because of that, I believed myself to be clean. Sure, I thought, this was seriously in my mindset. I may have sinned, but at least in recovery, I was promised salvation. Needless to say, that was all a bunch of BS. Now, I do want to make this abundantly clear because when I don't specify this, someone comes up to me after every one of these events and likes to position their disagreement directly into my face. And while I am vaccinated, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. And plus, those sorts of confrontations never promote good conversation. So to be abundantly clear, children should not use recreational drugs, nor is every prescription pill bad. I think we can all agree on that. But the sad thing is, when it comes to the way we police drug use, health and safety have never been the common denominator. Common denominator. Now, you probably want some proof, right? And for full disclosure, this is where I put up a slide with these numbers on it. But the three most harmful substances, no matter how you break down the data, whether it's by the number of people that they kill every year, the number of uh, percent of users who develop adverse effects of that use, or the total adverse effects caused by their use, no matter how you break it down, those three substances are all legal. Now, I usually like to do this part as a guessing game when I'm in front of an interactive crowd, but since we don't have that luxury tonight, I will just tell you those three substances are alcohol, nicotine, and sugar. And before you label me some health nut, just know that sitting down with a box of Girl Scout cookies and a glass of whiskey is not a rare occurrence in my household. So if it's not health and safety, what are we talking about here? Well, the simple fact is whenever we create policy around drugs, going back to the very beginning, as with sadly too many things in our country, it all comes down to racism. The very first drug law passed in this country was, was enacted in the late 1890s in San Francisco. And that law specifically outlawed a use of the substance known as opium. Now, it wasn't the type that you would find in a white person's medicine cabinet at the time. No, no, no that one was fine. It was, however, the type of opium that you could smoke, the type preferred by Chinese immigrants. And 
these lawmakers decided to outlaw this type of opium because they were afraid that these Chinese immigrants were using this opium to, well, engage with white women. I know, pretty disgusting, right? Well, thanks. To, uh, thankfully, those of us who study uh, drug policy and track uh, drug use, we're very lucky in the respect that until roughly the middle of the 1900s, the, the conversations around drug use and drug policy contained overt racism. Now, after that, uh, we began to see what we would call dog whistle politics. But but until then, it was pretty out in the open. And that same fear that those deemed less desirable by our country were using drugs to corrupt white women has been used time and time and time again to enact new drug policy. We saw it in the early 1900s around black citizens, specifically targeting cocaine and heroin. We saw it again not long after that, targeting those from Central and South America, but mostly Mexicans, around cannabis use. And we saw it again in the early 19, I'm sorry, in the, in the, the late 1960s and early 1970s by Richard Nixon and his administration to kick off what we call the war on drugs. Now, at this point in this, this speech, I put up a slide that has the quote from John Ehrlichman that most of you probably know that specifically uh, admits that they knew that they were lying about um, the harms of drug use, but they used it as a red herring to uh, criminalize being against the, the war in Vietnam uh, and, and for civil rights. So a very interesting quote. If you've not seen that, go look for the John Ehrlichman quote about the drug war. Now, I say after that, so you may be wondering, all right, great, you made your point, we get it, <laughs> the drug, drug laws are racist, but what does that have to do with your particular struggle and um, your desire to see everyone who deserves help get the help they deserve? Well, good question. Let me ask you a couple in response. Number one, has it ever seemed odd to you that the type of uh, treatment, sorry, the type of prevention, but specifically the type through our criminal justice system, gets 10 times the amount of federal funding as any sort of treatment model does. That's number one. Number two, uh, does it ever seem weird to you that medically assisted treatment, despite being preferred by doctors everywhere because it's actually, you know, medical, is only used in roughly 20% of our treatment centers, vastly outnumbered by the religious and abstinent-only based AA model. That's number two. Number three, does it ever seem weird to you that there's such a strong resistance to harm reduction techniques that have been proven to save lives? I'm talking about things like needle exchanges, uh, safe consumption sites, Narcan distribution, despite there being no opposition to bars and liquor stores, even though that second category actually creates more harm because they're directly giving the substance instead of allowing for safe use of the substance. And the answer to these questions is because we've decided that everybody drinks, but only degenerates use drugs. And because of that, we deny people who use drugs basic services. And what's so sad is we've seen this before. In the late 19-teens, moral crusaders succeeded in having alcohol use criminalized. And what we saw in that time directly mirrored what we're seeing from current drug use. A couple examples. Number one, the, the, the alcohol was made in people's homes or it was smuggled over the border, so you really never knew what you were getting. Number two, the 
uh, use of, of this was mostly hidden in people's homes. And so the criminal justice, uh, you know, ex- expertise sprang in. And number three, because of that, crime skyrocketed. And all of these things led to the repeal of prohibition. So why haven't we done the same thing with drugs? Well, it's because logic has never entered the conversation around drug use. In fact, it's been denied a seat at the table from the very beginning. So I understand most of you are going, wow, that's a lot. Well, there is a lot. And it's sometimes it's really hard to figure out where to start because so much needs to change. But there is one point that our researchers all agree on. And that is if we start teaching our children honest and fact-based education around drug use, we will start to save lives from day one. And I know when I say that every parent in this audience goes, Whoa. <laughs> but what if I tell you we've done this before? And the, this is the other part I like to do is interactive. I ask everybody to raise their hand if they got an awkward conversation around uh, sex from their parents growing up. And of course, every hand always goes up. But the, the startling thing is it, it started to change drastically in the late uh, 1990s, early 2000s when I myself was a student. That was the time when schools moved away from abstinent-only based sex education to safe sex lessons. And despite what you may have heard on some news channels, teen birth rates plummeted. And, and this is a point where I put up this graph that shows that teen birth rates in the late 90s and early 2000s go just rocketing down. And the, the, the answer is pretty simple. Despite what opposition said at the time, <laughs> teaching safe sex does not make kids want to have sex. They're teens. They already want to have sex. But teaching them safe sex makes them do it safely. And those lessons stay with them for the rest of their lives. It's time we did the same thing for drug use. You know, I can't imagine how different my story would be if I had had those lessons, if I had been able to pinpoint what addiction and and substance misuse looked like earlier before I got to the deaths I did myself. It makes me think of this campaign by Mental Health America that they're famous for called Before Stage 4 which is trying to advocate for more mental health education and treatment earlier in the process before people get to uh, the, the stage four, the equivalent of stage four for cancer, where there's very little that can be done. It's time that we do the same thing for drug use. So this is the last miseducation I want to leave you with. If recent and groundbreaking studies are to be believed, and I hope that they are, only roughly 8 to 12% of people who use substances will ever struggle with any form of substance misuse, of which addiction, and by the way, I mean full-blown medical addiction like my own, is down at roughly 4% of all substance uh, users. To put that in context, you are more likely in your life to be involved in a serious car accident than you are to struggle with addiction. And so think back to that, uh, that image that I had you picture at the beginning. What if instead of seeing that person and pitying that person, what if instead of seeing that person and being taught to hate that person, what if we saw them the way that we, that we do cancer fighters, right? Someone who's fighting, someone who is doing their absolute best to defeat this thing, someone that we should admire for their struggle and for their perseverance and someone that we should give every available tool to instead of looking down on them and hating them. What if we love that person? And I can tell you, with absolute vulnerability and absolute sincerity that this would have helped me. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that 
reach out. We'd love to hear from you.